Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. Thanks for turning out. I know it's holiday time and uh, people will be out and about for the next few weeks, which is fine, but we should carry on. Uh, one of the great impacts that we're having, probably much more than here, is... Um, is in our online content and viewing. Um, our Rosa Parks um, post that we put is up over 20,000 uh, likes. Um, not everybody listens to the message, but a great proportion of those do. We reached 37,000 people this week with our posts, had almost 3,000 engagements of people listening to. So. Um, there's a benefit beyond, so thanks for being here, and we appreciate and want to be a blessing to, uh, to the wider audience. The strange times that we're in, um, and we need to come through, so I've got, I've got some things I'd like to talk about this morning a bit later on. Again, don't forget uh, that we're not here next Sunday morning because of the 10K run. Um, but, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do, get it done. Let's be happy. Enjoy the sun. Don't be the typical British, oh, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too windy, it's too wet, it's too dry, okay? Take it as it comes and enjoy it. It's a blessing. So, hope you've had a great week and hope that you're going to have an even better week uh, when we take into our spirit what we hear today. So blessings and thanks for being here. Oh, and thanks for Connor as well. For Danny's on his holes. So Connor's doing a great job for us. Awesome. Okay, kids can go with whoever's kidding, because we never thought who might not be here, didn't we, unless with the holidays. If you can find some children, they like Pied Piper, gather them up and... <clears throat> yeah, let's make uh, love our home base, just like Joel and Connie sang. <clears throat> okay, so if, if you know me and the things I've fought for and taught... You'll understand why I have a problem with what's happening right now. Jesus one day had to say to his disciples, Have you been with me so long and still don't know me? My issue is not with the, the bus. <laughs> That's not the point. But I see certain elements that have been brought in that remind me of everything that despotic, cruel, religious institutional control of governments and people have been done for generations and slipping in. 
Any sense of manipulation to control always sends my kite up in the air to ask questions. Now, I was going to talk to you today, which you probably like better, about the whys of my life. To try and get an explanation to you, <clears throat> why do I not pray in church very often now? Why do we not try to create an atmosphere with our songs? Why have I moved to where I seem to stand in respect of our view of God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Why is it I often speak with little or no Bible reference? Then I heard the latest proclamation from our government about the introduction of vaccine passports. And also the tag-on that that may be brought in for churches. Ain't going to happen here. You can come and visit me if you need to. In full sort now, wherever I am. See, it, it, when I heard that on the same day, I, I read something that had a really profound effect on me. I mean, it, it, it got me to the core of my being. And what I'm about to read to you may sound extreme, but the principle remains. Now, some of you will say what many have said to me in the whole debate about this, oh, it's just not the same. People have been saying that about everything that happened in society since the beginning of time. Oh, you know, you're getting it all wrong. It's just not the same. Well, the spirit is the same. Humanity is the same. And here's what I read. It didn't start with gas chambers. It started with one party controlling the media. One party controlling the message. You understand this is not about conservative or labor. This is about whoever party people is. One party deciding what is truth. One party censoring speech and silencing opposition. One party dividing citizens into us and them and calling on their supporters to harass them. It started when good people turned a blind eye and let it happen. Then I began to ask myself the question, what would it take for you to trade away your integrity? For Judas in the Bible, it was 30 pieces of silver. You would have said anybody who's experienced the love of Jesus, the fellowship of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus would never compromise their integrity having had that experience. But 30 pieces of silver did it for Judas. What about Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Abraham? One of the patriarchs of the faith, Jacob. Joseph, his youngest son. The son about whom the musical is written. Joseph and his coat of many colours. The, the, what's the musical? The Technicolor Dreamcoat. That Joseph. That Joseph, his brothers had a chance to get rid of the annoying favoured sibling. And that was where they were prepared to trade away their integrity. If we can get rid of this annoying, favoured sibling, we'll be happy. When the children of Israel were across the desert and on the brink of going in 
to their inherited land that they had been promised. After all the freedom, spending two years in the desert, spies were sent into the land of Canaan. And give you all the references for this if you want. They're great stories. You should read them. And 12 spies were sent. And 10 spies came back with a bad report. Oh, we should be really careful. We shouldn't do this. We should be cautious. Don't you realize the dangers? This is just terrible. And what was happening with those spies, I don't condemn them for or criticize them for it, but fear of the unknown will often find the point where we'll trade away our integrity because we've encountered fear of the unknown. What about Peter, the disciple of Jesus? I'll never betray you. These all may leave you, but I'll never do it. And within hours of him saying that, three times he denied that he knew Jesus. Three times he denied that he was part of that group and that he was with them and could be associated with their belief. What happened with Peter was the threat of association became the thing that it took to trade away his integrity. He was frightened that if he was associated with the Jesus viewpoint, what would it mean for him? So he traded his integrity. Now, I also think it's wonderful that three times he denied the Lord, but when Jesus met them the day after his resurrection and cooked breakfast for them, Jesus did something for Peter. He asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? He gave Peter almost the three opportunities to undo what it was. That's grace, that's kindness, that's love, that's generosity of spirit. And so dear old Peter was back on board. For many a leader, the chance to stay in power is the point at which one trades away their integrity. Politics is a messy business. At the top of any tree, at any significant company, church, organization, religious institution, power does funny things to people. Money does funny things to people, but you will find that people who have all the money they need never shrink into the background. They've always got another scheme, another something. Why is it? Because they can't give up the power. Why do actors in Hollywood who've been famous find that they can't go into gentle retirement, that somehow they have, because they can't stand being out of the public eye. They need that notoriety of being in the public eye. And so we trade our integrity for many of these things. If you can handle the language, uh, watch Ricky Gervais at the Oscars talking about all the posturing, self-righteous celebrities who will sell themselves out for the next Amazon super flick if it gives them what they need. Maybe for me, it might be just the loss of a holiday that says, well, I'll just do it anyway because I won't be able to go on a holiday. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm trying to be really gentle here. I've not looked forward to bringing this, but I know I have to. 
What I'm trying to say is we must be careful, and Q must be careful, that we hold integrity higher than circumstance. Do we, in reality, all have a price which buys a compromise and sells a piece of our soul? Or maybe that should be a piece, P-E-A-C-E, of our soul. In the hope of obtaining some perceived benefit or avoiding conflict. And I understand those because everything inside of me, my whole personality, wants to avoid conflict. I don't thrive in conflict. It does me in. I hate to confront I would rather try a thousand other methods to people's frustrations than actually confront what needs to confront. Avoiding conflict can drive that. And we tell people, have the courage of your convictions, but then don't like it when they do. Do we? Oh, you should have the courage of your convictions. Well, I think that what you chose is wrong. Yeah, but that was the courage of my convictions. Yeah, but it's the wrong courage and it's the wrong conviction. See, we have to understand we are many different people with many different attitudes and ideas and I'm not against anything that anybody wishes to choose to do. What I am against is if then we don't love and we don't care and we don't respect and we don't accept as a community, that others have the same right to choose that you had to choose, and what will be respected from one side must be respected from the other. We cannot have a culture of shame. And so I read this in um, Hebrews chapter 12, and I, I must admit I shed a tear or two when I read this because I've always found it extremely moving. Here's what the writer to Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 15 said. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Now, now he didn't just say, see to it that you don't miss it. He's writing to the whole group saying, you guys need to see to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's your responsibility to see that no one misses the grace of God. And get this, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If we have attitude behind what we say is the grace, all it ever does is cause us trouble and we defile people and we defile ourselves because of it. And so it goes on in verse 16. I've chopped the first little bit out. Put it this way. Consider Esau. Now Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob and Esau were twins born to Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. These were part of the patriarchy of the story that's important. You don't just have to be a Jew for the life of Jacob and Esau to be important because the message in there is to hold humanity. And Esau was the first twin and so by the rules, he was entitled to the whole inheritance. The whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, the power of the family name, the authority of the family name, and everything that the family owned, Esau would be the inheritor of that. 
But then one day, he'd been out on an hunting expedition. We don't know for how long. You know, I don't understand the term when we say he was a man's man. I've never seen any man that I think, whoa, he's a man's man. But Esau was one of those guys who was an outdoorsman, he was rugged, he was a hunter. Jacob was a bit of a mummy's boy, you know, you couldn't have had a bigger contrast. But Esau had been out on a hunt, and um, I don't know how long he'd been gone, but when he came back to camp, he'd evidently been gone for a long time because he was absolutely famished. You know, we use the word starving, like, oh, I'm starving. You know, it's it's like tell the kids in Ethiopia or in the civil war that, you know, it's like... Anyway, he came back and said, I'm really starving. Now, Jacob had a pot of stew on the go. And Esau said, I'm really starving, I'm hungry. Oh, Jacob, I'm going to die if I don't have food. Now, of course, he wasn't. But sometimes when you want something, it clouds your idea, it clouds the brain, it fogs you up. Oh, I've got to have it, I need to have... Well. You know, just go in the tent and make a sandwich. It's not like Jacob's cooking this somewhere out 14 miles from home in the middle of a field just for, you know, just for the good of it. Or I'm a celebrity cook, get me out of here or whatever. He's at home. Esau could have gone in and made himself a sandwich. But he got taken by what Jacob was cooking. And he said, oh, you know, just, just, you know, can I, give me a bowl of your stew. I'm dying here. I'm starving. And Jacob, being the person he was, said, okay, I'll do it for a price. Well, what price? You can have a bowl of my stew if you swear over your inheritance rights. Now, you think that's stupid. I'd never do that. But we've all done that in our value system. We've swapped things for something that was worth nothing, and we've given everything into that. And so here's how it's written, and this this always brings a tear to me. Consider Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. He wanted what Jacob was cooking, get this, because he thought it would save his life. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing... He was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought it with tears. You see, some compromises of our integrity mean that we lose things that we can never get back. No matter how hard we cry, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we offer, there are some things that we can never get back. And there are times when, faced with what's before us, that we give up more than we should have. So do your values shift like a volatile day at the stock market? Moving with whatever the market dictates. Well, I can go here, I can go there, I can accept this, I can reject that. I can be one with that argument. Oh, but now I can be one with this argument. Does desperation make us vulnerable to anyone who confidently proclaims a solution? You know, we have a strange response to confident people. Now, now just bear in mind there's a difference between confident and competent. 
But we are often not looking for competency, we're looking for confidence. So whether a person is competent or not, confidence does something to us. We kind of feel safe. It's the old tribal leader thing. We feel safe. This guy, this woman seems to know what they're doing, so they must know what they're doing because they seem to know what they're doing, and the talkers, though, they know what they're doing. So I'm going to follow them. Please don't narrow this down to any one thing because the same thing happens in church. I know for a fact throughout my life in ministry, the more confident that I am, the stronger the following that I have. Because confidence does strange things to us. And so the truth is we can be brought to a position of accepting something simply on the grounds that somebody confidently says, this is what you should do, this is the answer. Now, we like to flatter our ego with the idea that we're free thinkers. But we, as humanity, are rarely swung by who has the most convincing argument, but more often by the choice that appears to offer us the greatest gain for the least amount of trouble that allows us to avoid conflict. We are wonderful beings but we're also pretty pathetic beings for a lot of the time because we need to grow in a grace we need to grow in something otherwise this is how our life tends to function another thing I need you to understand there is the difference between compromise and conformity now compromise was always a bad word when I was raised in church you don't compromise your faith you don't compromise the gospel And I get that. But compromise is also a good thing. Compromise is when we together work something out, and so there's a little give and take, you understand that. There's a compromise that says, well, okay, some of you may love this, some of you may not, but let's do this, and let's hopefully, as things go and move, actually we'll we'll help most people most of the time with something. The difference between compromise and conformity is that one relies on strength of argument. Here's the point. Let's see if we can come to an agreement. The other one relies on the exertion of power. You will do this. Not let's talk about what we really should do and how we should. No, the other one, conformity, says you will do this. Now, it's interesting, and I can be accused of uh, cherry-picking the Bible, um, but I have to be honest, even people who say, don't cherry-pick the Bible, cherry-pick the Bible to prove that you shouldn't cherry-pick the Bible. So, you know, I'm done with all that nonsense. But I am interested in things that speak to the situation. And In the book of Romans, in the Bible, chapter 12, verse 2, there's a brilliant verse. It says, and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, again, the way I was raised, that was like, you know, all them out there are wicked and evil and terrible and doing nasty things, so don't be that. But actually, it's talking about the pattern of this world, how the world works if you don't have a revelation to pull you out of how the world works. 
says, don't be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Please, I ask you, don't do what you do because you're simply following a prescribed pattern. Do it from the place of the transformative power of a renewed mind. And then your integrity will not be compromised. The great giveaway for any controlling system is its reliance on fear, shame and guilt to advance its message. When I was successful at preaching the gospel, the primary element was fear. We're all sinners, you're sinners. Not only are you sinners, but you're going to hell. Not only are you sinner and going to hell at this moment, but how you have offended the God Most High, how you've trampled on the blood that Jesus gave for you, how you've rejected his precious sacrifice, it's all going to end in damnation, fear. And then you bring into that shame. You should be ashamed of your life. You should be ashamed of your humanity. You should be ashamed of your beliefs. You should be ashamed of your behavior. And then guilt. And so you are guilty. And if you are guilty, God is quite within his rights to sentence you to a punishment which turned out to be, as we thought then, eternal conscious torment. Think of that. Basically what it was saying is, do what you're told or you'll die. There wasn't a full truth. There wasn't a full revelation of truth. There were elements within what we're being taught that was true, but it wasn't the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It was only the bits of truth that could manipulate a people through fear, shame, and guilt to be kept in their place and do what I, the preacher, wanted. And so then we would have an appeal. And people would pour out to the front. And as they swelled this way, my ego swelled that way. Look what a great job I'm doing. But it was all based on a message of fear, guilt, and shame. See, what you add to that then is, 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 is important because you'll see, and I'm speaking metaphorically in some of this, but you add to that the proclamation of a saviour who will save you if you repent and accept, and you have the model of every repressive religion, empire, and institution. Beware of it. There's no greater life lesson to be found anywhere in the world on losing one's freedom and the price of regaining it than the ancient story of the children of Israel and their Egypt experience. You should read it. It's a classic. But do you know how, they, how and why they finished up slaves for over 400 years? It was all going hunky-dory. It was all going well. Their great champion was the guy, Joseph, whose brothers compromised their integrity by getting rid of this annoying sibling who was his dad's favorite, only to find that he finished up in Egypt and became the prime minister of Egypt, second only to the pharaoh. 
Now, the question is not, is that accurately historically true? That's actually not the point. The point is, what is this saying to us about slavery and freedom and the compromise of integrity and what happens now? The story works out great because Joseph, who they thought was dead, actually becomes their saviour. And very often, those who we want to get out of our lives, if they have grace, will be the ones who save our lives when the day of reckoning comes. And so old Joseph there, he, uh, he was prime minister and he died. Not like just, you know, dead. Of course, he lived his life, he lived to be old. But meanwhile, all the children of Israel had stopped doing what they were supposed to do, which is be nomads and journeymen in the wilderness, walking and possessing and taking and living in tents, having a temporary structures, but a living faith. They finished up being given land in Egypt. Well, come into our land because there's a famine, but you'll be fed here. There's a problem, but we'll solve your problem. It's dangerous out there, but it's safe here. And it was. And so they went. And they lived there. But then you get this classic verse that crops up. It says, And there rose up a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he feared that these people were becoming too many and too powerful. And so that's when the Israelites' captivity in Egypt began. See, how they lost their freedom is very rarely preached. It's the truth too near the reality of our own lives. And it contains no sensationalism, no great battle. They just sleepwalk into slavery they just were in the place where they could allow it to happen they'd lost their barbarian spirit their questioning attitude comfort and the promise of well-being convinced them that all would be well but then they found themselves in the most oppressive slavery for the next 400 years And expressing a desire for freedom once they became slaves was greeted with the demand to make bricks without straw. Now, this is, this, this, um, uh, in terms of the way it's written, really links back into uh, the culture of the time, but it's, 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 it's literary power is nevertheless there for all of us. They created a problem, said, oh, hang on a minute. We're not liking this. Now, if you made bricks, you used to make bricks of clay mixed with straw. And the straw helped in the process of making the bricks. Making bricks without straw was ten times more difficult than making bricks with straw. And so the answer of the authority, now that they were slaves, said, okay, well, if you want to kick up stink, if you want to raise an issue about your slavery, then you can make your bricks without straw. All the time getting more difficult. And the road to freedom that they had from what is known as the sojourn in Egypt was the long and difficult one. And it's a great lesson about how we become slaves and what happens when we are slaves and what will be necessary in order to correct our slavery. 
But what they also discovered when they left Egypt, finally, again, amazing story, they discovered that freedom is much more difficult to handle than slavery. Because believe it or not, you get used to being a slave. Believe it or not, you get used to being in prison. Believe it or not, you get used to being sick. And we call it institutionalization. And it's a real psychological process that we become institutionalized and we actually feel safer in what it was that we were interred in than we do with our freedom. There are a whole group of humanity who can't wait to get back in prison after their release. And when you talk to them, and I've talked to them, well, I get three meals a day. I've got a telly, I've got a bed, I've got a home. You know, I've got companionship. So, so you know, we pleaded with them. You know, well, don't, don't, no, surely you want to have a new life. Well, no, because that, that's everything I need is there. You say, well, that's crazy. Not to them it isn't crazy, because that's the power of institutionalization in our thinking. And anything that we change, it's like, well, it can't be a proper meeting if we haven't opened with prayer. It can't be proper worship if we haven't raised our hands and sung a song that tells Jesus how amazing he is. So do you see, even in all areas, we, we get this thing that it has to be this, and we don't know how, we just don't know how to be free. And I, I know for a fact from my journey, freedom is much more difficult to handle than slavery. Teaching people how to think is much more difficult than telling people what to think. There'll always be inconvenient truths that force their way into the flow of life. The world's way, the coward's way, is to ignore, hide, or suppress them. Our questions and doubts are real. And guess what? They're not going away. And we have to face them head on. And as I said to you in a couple of previous weeks, I do not wish to participate in a culture where inconvenient truths are carefully hidden to protect the feelings of some individual or group's self-interest. So, as I begin to bring this through to tie it up, a couple of things I want to say, and I want to read something. Much of the church loves what I believe to be a sentimental, romantically created caricature of Jesus. I am convinced, and this is not just preacher's license, I am convinced most of us would have been among the crowd at his trial baying for his execution. The one day threw branches before on Palm Sunday greeting him with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord were the same crowd who one week later were shouting crucify him, we will not have this man to reign over us. The truth is the real Jesus became a huge disappointment. What they were expecting, what they thought, what they would have liked, the real Jesus became a huge disappointment and I'm convinced the real Jesus would be a huge disappointment to most of the church today. They would see him as a trouble causer, a fire starter, a subversive, a rebel. And some people have said, and I, I echo it, that there's probably not a single committee or board or eldership in the Christian world where Jesus would have won a vote to get onto the committee. 
especially when he challenged, he seemingly, yeah, I've missed this bit. Can't deny that Jesus started out, you can't deny this, that he started out more popular than he finished up. Now, I'm not talking about what has happened in the world since then, that's part two of a story. But in his own life, he finished up, he was more, finished up being less popular than he had been. He started out more popular than he finished up. So why? Because he seemingly possessed a gift for upsetting the established order of things, doing and saying things in a way that both religion and government found subversive. Especially when he challenged their established belief systems, structures and institutions, accusing them of having the devil as their father, of engaging a gospel of threat, manipulation and control, of presentation of and need to appease an angry God, of a system of reward for doing good and punishment for doing bad, and a refusal to allow him to be the saviour of the whole world. That salvation loves, heals, Releases, accepts, forgives, blesses, includes, sets free, leads. Like the psalmist says, he leads you in and he leads you out and you find green pasture. And it captivates rather than holds captive. So one of our statements that's really gone around and uh, stirred up a lot of extremely positive response especially from people in the black and coloured community, is the one that I said about that the, on, the only difference between, a compl- between compliant and complaint is where the eye sits. You need to know this eye is going to sit somewhere that you might not be comfortable with. And that maybe this eye will have to bring this church in the same way that Martin Luther King had to bring the church in America, the black church in America, to be at the center of the civil rights movement to correct some overbearing issues that were, that were in unnecessary and were oppressive. And to quote from the movie that we had, maybe you can't be careful and effective. Maybe you just can't be careful and effective. Considerate, yes. Kind, yes. But careful, probably no. So let me read this to you and then I'm done. Something in us wants to be honest. But something in us also wants to be liked by those around us. Something in us wants to do good. But something in us also wants to be thought of as good by others. Something in us wants to hold values that contribute to the good of society, but something in us fears when we see that that may cause conflict. That creates tension. And when enough conflicting desires wrestle within us, they create a faith crisis, and very quickly the faith crisis becomes an identity crisis. And while ever we remain in that crisis, someone else will define who we are. For all of us, there is so much we can lose. I am personally familiar with the temptation to trade away one's integrity and honesty for the security of acceptance and belonging 
when the opposite may mean rejection, persecution and humiliation. But when we succumb to the temptation to replace a free-thinking, dynamic faith with rigid beliefs, something inside us dies. What dies is the real I am. The God-given I am. The true me. What replaces it is a mask-wearing, behaviour-controlled shadow of somebody else's light. In the middle of this identity crisis, whether we're standing in some toilets and staring at a mirror or lying in bed at night staring up at a dark ceiling or standing on a stage preaching to a crowd, we engage in a profound cost-benefit analysis weighing the benefits of external conformity against the benefits of honest questioning and perhaps even resistance. This internal debate puts the intellectual, social and moral structures of our identity under acute psychological stress. And it pits our survival, belonging and meaning modules against one another. To relieve that stress, we have a tendency to make small decisions in the direction of conformity and dishonesty. All Jesus had to do was decide to not be who he was and he could have walked away without having to put it all on the line. Just say, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. You can walk away. You can be free. Just say, God is not your father. Just say, you're just a Jew like everybody else. You can walk away without having to put it all on the line. I'm glad he didn't. But he didn't. And something began that day that would forever change our world. Just in that moment, that he would not deny the person that he was. And because of it, we're actually here today with some hope of living life successfully. When we become obsessed with what Jesus did in his death, more than who he was in his life, I think we excuse ourselves of an obligation towards our fellow human being. And so it becomes save yourself, right? And, and you know, there's one thing I'd like to make sure doesn't happen here. The term selfish is a very real term, but just who's being selfish about what and towards whom, is not quite as easy to define. And if we're going to live in that grace that we claim to have, then we can't have that attitude, we can't give that attitude, we can't start that attitude. We have to be people who love and understand. and must not... That's why I said that. This is very important. When we become obsessed with what Jesus did in his death, it brings us to a whole different place than if we get obsessed with who he was in his life. Now, I'm not saying one's greater than the other. They are both equal and the same, but we mustn't miss one at the extent of the other because that will help us to live. And when you see how Jesus treated people, he didn't exclude the leper. He hugged the leper. And he healed the leper. And for those who weren't healed, they knew that they would find grace and space and mercy 
in Jesus' presence. They knew that they would not be given any kind of exclusion, but totally acceptance. And so two scriptures, I'm done. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Paul said to Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to your care, and grace be with you. I ask you, as I believe my people, to guard what's been entrusted to your care, and grace be with you. And one last one, Hebrews 13, 20. And this is a prayer for me, for you, over all of us today. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.